The Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing the success of businesses and communities throughout the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. I'm at class with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, we will be interviewing Colonel Richard A. Searfoss. Hey, Ron, how are you doing? I'm great, Ed. How are you? <laughs> I'm like... My son, we're going to be, introdu- to be talking to an astronaut today, Ron, on the show. <laughs> I know and I was, te- I was telling my 10-year-old son this, and he, you know, he's, fortunately he's still 10, not a teenager yet, and he thinks I'm like the coolest person in the world to be talking to an astronaut. So, <laughs> One of 500 people, Ed, that's been in space. <laughs> I know. This is absolutely incredible. Well, let me introduce our guest. Uh, Colonel Richard A. Searforce was born in 1956 in Mount Clemens, Michigan, but considers Portsmouth, New Hampshire to be his home, and he came, became an Eagle Scout, Ron, and I think that the high percentage of Eagle Scouts uh, are, are uh, astronauts, so we'll have to ask him about that. But he graduated from uh, Portsmouth Senior High School and, and then went on to receive a Bachelor of Science in Aeronautical Engineering from the United States Air Force Academy in 1978. Just that alone is, is pretty incredible and intense. He's a Master of Science with a degree in aeronautics from the California Institute of Technology and in, went, went on to the Air Force. He attended the Squadron Officer School, Air Command and Staff College, and the Air War College. Then, after all that, Ron... He went on to become an astronaut in 1991, where he piloted space shuttles STS-58 and 76, and commanded space shuttle uh, STS-90, which was famous for the uh, Noro Lab, so we'll get into that later on with him. And then, which is the place I'm going to start out this interview after I I, uh, finally introduce him, he went on to star in a commercial for Volkswagen. So... (laughs) Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Colonel Rick Searfoss. <laughs> oh, thanks, Ed. <laughs> so I'm going to ask first. So tell me about being in a commercial with a car. <laughs> oh, hey, that was great fun. I was, so I'm sitting in the Denver airport one day on the way to a speaking engagement. I get this call on my mobile and this gal from an advertising agency saying, Hey, uh, you're an astronaut, right? And I go, Yeah. And said, We need you for a commercial. Are you interested? And I go, yeah, sure. Tell me, when is this? He goes, next week. Oh, next week? Yeah, we'll make it work. They go, okay, we'll, we'll get back to you. We have to check with your creatives. Do you have a headshot or anything? I go, 
no, I'm not an actor. I'm an astronaut. And they go, well, do you have anything on the Internet? And I gave her a few resources. She went and checked it out. A couple hours later, she said, yeah, you'll do. The creatives say you look enough like an astronaut so we can do it. <laughs> and the idea, they just wanted, Volkswagen wanted to compare, you know, technical prowess and engineering between NASA and, uh, and what they did. And that was the whole setup. But it, it was fun. I've, and I learned a lot. Uh, Heidi Klum was on set just before me because she did one in this series as well and I was actually very impressed with her personality and sort of a leadership component that she presented because her handlers were trying to get her out of there in a hurry but she took the time to visit with everyone on the crew and and took pictures with them on the set and just was very gracious to these folks so I, that was very impressive from my viewpoint. That's fantastic. So you are you argued with with the Volkswagen about how many, the number of engineers at NASA versus VW. I, yeah, we actually exactly. I found the commercial and we'll be sure to <laughs> post it as part YouTube, of our sure. <laughs> Yeah, it's out there on YouTube. So we'll post it as part of our show notes. It's fantastic. How long did it take? Just curious. Oh, it was just uh, you know, I mean, a couple hour shoot and it's locally here in LA, it's a couple hour drive for me. So I drove down, did it. And I actually had to leave that afternoon to go on another one of my corporate speaking engagements. So it, it all worked out great. And, uh, you know, a nice little variety. I've also consulted on some movies. I consulted on the Tom Cruise sci-fi flick Oblivion and on Green Lantern. actually got a cameo appearance in Green Lantern, which was kind of fun. So I've done a variety of different interesting things. Oh, that's fun. That's fun. Okay, well, now back on. And we're also, I should have also mentioned that you're also the author of Liftoff, an astronaut's commander's countdown for purpose-powered leadership, which we will definitely talk to you about. Um, one of the things I want to mention to the audience, if you pick up a copy of this book, do not be thrown off by the fact that the chapters go in reverse order. That's on purpose. That's um, a plan. It's a countdown. That's plan. <laughs> <laughs> just to throw you off. But first question I wanted to ask you is, okay, so you were the pilot – of STS's 58 and 76 and the commander of STS-90. What's the difference between a pilot and a commander? Right. Well, well in the sh space shuttle program, of course, you had to have very experienced military background test pilots to actually fly and land the vehicle. So I came into the program as a pilot astronaut hired specifically because of that background. And the career progression, so to speak, is you start out as the pilot in the right seat. You're really a co-pilot, but you know, we very experienced military test pilots don't want to call ourselves co-pilots, so you, you <laughs> call ourselves the pilot. But then after a flight or two, you get the experience and you've progressed well and so forth. Then you get the command responsibility. And the distinction is very clearly on the human side, the leadership side. Uh, I mean, you're the where the buck start, stops here with the actual execution of the mission and making sure that the crew in the vehicle, you know, this $2 billion national asset comes home safely. So I found a tremendous difference in sort of my mindset and preparation between being the pilot in the right seat where it was focused solely on the technical performance and just, you know, drilling into my systems and so forth. And as commander, I had all of that for my own technical systems, plus the big picture in mind and being the leader and making sure it all comes together. But the, the, is is it the pilot or the commander who act, who lands the vehicle when it it's, comes down it's to It's actually Earth? the commander. You know, I mean, it, it, okay. NASA made it a little bit confusing, but the commander is actually a pilot. It's, it's equivalent to the 
airline captain is even sitting in the left seat, uh, but we just gotcha. delineate the crew positions a little differently. Um, and there's enough redundancy in the systems and the training that if there were, for some reason, if a commander would have ever been incapacitated, the pilot could fly the shuttle and land it from the right seat. But normally the commander would do that task. That makes sense. So, so there would be always always two people on the shuttle who, who could, yeah. who could and, theoretically and land of, it kind of summarize the difference is a story I like to tell from my, up in the middle of my first mission, I was having a great time, the mission was going great, working hard, my commander pulled me aside in the middle of one day and goes, you know, Rick, it's going to be different when you're a commander, and I'm going, yeah, okay, John, uh, what do you mean? <laughs> he goes, you could be having a great mission, it could be an A-plus mission, but it's always going to be in the back of your mind, if you screw up the landing, an A-plus could turn into a, an F in a heartbeat. And it's always going to be in the back of your mind that at the end of the day, you have to fulfill that properly, no matter how well the mission has gone, or it's not going to be a success. And that it was a great lesson for me. And I actually very much had those feelings when I was up on board, constantly thinking about everything, that it's, it's not over till it's over. You know, when you get to wheel stop and you're home safe and sound, then you can breathe a sigh of relief. But up to then, you've got to be totally on your game. That that's just incredible to me. The science behind you know pull, pulling this this ship out of orbit at the 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 right window to land it without any power. I mean, you're a glider at that point, right? Oh yes, it's I mean the world's biggest glider, <laughs> and uh, in some ways a very poor performing glider. But that's fine. It's poor performing from the point of view that it uh, doesn't go very far forward for how much it goes down. But that's what you want. You want all that drag to take away all the tremendous energy you have from orbital speeds to get back to a landing. And it really was, you know, I mean, fascinating for me right from the start when they first developed the shuttle and then all the way through the decade of the 90s when I was in the program, uh, all of the intricacies involved to make that work, so much of which the general public was just never aware of. But uh, the details of it were fascinating. I mean, we could talk for hours and hours and hours of those technical things, but uh, what in retrospect now, many years after I complete my astronaut duties, in retrospect, what's most amazing to me are the, are the teams and the people that pulled it off that made it look easy when it was anything but easy. Yeah, we, we um, th- I have a favorite word that I like to uh, to talk about with regard to that, it, and it's a it's it's an Italian word, and the word is sprezzatura. And it, it specifically means the ability to make something that is extraordinarily difficult look easy. Yeah. And, and I, I, so the, the example I usually give, but now I will now give you you and the space shuttle as another example. But the example I usually give is like uh, shortstop Derek Jeter, you know, mm-hmm. make, making a diving stop on the hole and then throwing a guy out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, and then he just kind of yeah, kicks the dirt off him and, to first base. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so spread that's sprezzatura. So yes, I, that's a great uh, another good story. Is is that this is a the whole space shuttle program is is a great example of sprezzatura. Um, Want to ask you just a little bit because we got uh, already we're only like three minutes away from break going so, by so fast here. But you, one of the things that I noticed in your biography, 6,000 hours of flying in 77 different types of aircraft. So as a test pilot, that, that's, that's a lot of aircraft. Yeah, <laughs> Isn't that I'm actually up for to 84 now. I've got a few new ones in my logbook recently. And that's, oh that's part and parcel, actually, the training and preparation for test pilots, anyone that goes to a military test pilot school, because they need to have the adaptability and an incredible breadth. There's no one with more 
breadth of experience uh, in aviation than people who are trained as test pilots. And I mean, that's why NASA hires test pilots to be pilot astronauts, you, you know, because you're used to dealing with a lot of unknown situations and you're prepared for it. And it's, I mean, it's great fun too. It's not like I've been totally checked out in all of those different airplanes. Many of them have just been a one or two flight kind of experience, but I've had the chance to go see what their flying qualities are, how they perform, evaluate the airplanes, and it's just been loads of fun. Was there any one that you got into that you said, this is really not a good idea? <laughs> uh, well, I would say, a num- and primarily the airplanes I flew operationally, uh, where I'm you know, flying a lot of flights in these airplanes, like the F-4 Phantom or the F-111 Aardvark I used to fly in the Air Force many moons ago. Yeah, on the proverbial dark and stormy night when you got a bad emergency going on, I had a few of those that, you know, but in the heat of battle, you don't really think of that. You're just kind of like, okay i got to get us out of this situation, and you just do the dress when the training and the preparation kicks in. And then it's when you get down on the ground, you go, wow, I'm, uh, I'm really glad that one worked out okay. I had a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will certainly get into some of those stories, but right now we're up against our first break. And we want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or myself by emailing us at ask. T-S-O-E at verisage.com. Please also check out our website at thesoulofenterprise.com, which is where we have all of our show notes as well as previews for upcoming shows. And please do keep those reviews on Amazon of our book, The Soul of Enterprise, and also the podcast on iTunes coming. They mean the world to us, and we really do appreciate that. So thanks for that. But right now we're going to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
Well, welcome back, everybody. We're honored to be here with Colonel Rick Searfoss, uh, former astronaut and space shuttle commander. Uh, and Rick, I kind of want to get into your book a little bit. You were gracious enough to uh, send Ed and I a copy of it, and I've been reading it the last week, and, and it's called Liftoff, an astronaut's, Astronaut Commander's Countdown for Purpose-Powered Leadership. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. It is a, It's just a great book. I loved all your stories from well, it. Well, thank Not you, Ron. I appreciate that. I mean, not only your astronaut stories, but I, I'm just as kind of fascinated by your Air Force career uh, and all the things you did there. But I wanted to ask you, um, what was your what was your primary motivation for writing the book? Well, I've been a leadership speaker uh, for the last 10, 12 years, and I love engaging with business audiences and sharing my particular take on leadership from, from my particular background. And the book is really a, a culmination of that, or it's bringing all of the stories and the experiences together in, in one place uh, to kind of be the summary of my message when it comes to leadership. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed the speaking, but uh, this is a, a way to branch out in, in another direction with that. And interestingly enough, no other astronaut or former astronaut has ever written a book about leadership, yet it's, it's part and parcel of those, particularly those who command human space missions in such a dynamic and difficult environment you know, where everything's on the line. And I felt there was a lot that I could share, uh, in particular for business organizations, but really any organization that's trying to go after a difficult, challenging mission. Right, and you were inspired by Dr. Stephen Covey, weren't you? Yes, very much so. In a personal way, too, I, I met him. I was still in the astronaut corps and was giving a presentation uh, at a big patriotic event, and uh, he was there in attendance, heard me speak, and came up to me afterwards in a reception and asked if he could use a quote for one of his new books coming out. I was I'm incredibly honored, blown away. And we got to chatting, and I indicated that I was about to retire from the Air Force and NASA, and I was kind of concerned about going into the business community because all my academic background is very technical, and, and you know, I hadn't been in business per se, and and he looked at me like I was a little crazy, and he goes, you know, you've got 25 years of leadership and teamwork. That's what American business needs more than anything else. You can figure out how to read a balance sheet, and that was a pivotal point for me. I, in that time between then and when I actually did retire, I, I really reframed my view of what I had to offer in the business world, and it was it was just a wonderful experience for me. Excellent. I remember you telling me at dinner that most of the astronauts have written, you know, personal memoirs that, you know, how we went to potty in space, but you wanted to do a leadership yeah, I mean, book. There's some it. of that. It goes, you know, either the memoirs, the very famous, of course, the moonwalkers and so forth had their memoirs. And then the questions, the commonly asked questions about flying in space. There's even a kid, kid's book or two out there about it, which are really fun. I mean, Mark Kelly wrote a wonderful one called Mousetronaut that I read to my grandson. And I go, hey, mm. I know this astronaut that wrote this book. He's my friend. And my grandson goes, oh, cool. You know, it's all good. <laughs> well, I won't, I won't ask you about it, but you do tell a story in the book about the toilet exploding on one of your flights. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, let's just sum it up to say that when I, as the commander, had to fix a toilet that had... It was giving us a few issues. I would have loved to delegate that, but the only other person trained on it had another competing priority at the time, which was a higher priority. So I fixed the toilet in space as the commander of the space shuttle, and as I was doing it, I distinctly remember thinking, you know, this job isn't nearly as glamorous as people think it is. <laughs> but necessary part of the systems, you know, and, and we got it fixed, so it was fine. 
And Rick, how do you distinguish, because I love how you define leadership, but how do you distinguish between management and leadership? Right. Well, in, in my view, you know, leadership is simply uh, influencing others for the good. And the focus in my book is really more at the operational level or the execution piece of leadership. I mean, I talk about, because it's a necessary precursor, some of the strategic implications and aspects, but it's really about, you know, rolling your sleeves up on the line and that kind of leadership. And, and that, of course, is perhaps the other side of the coin or, or a, relates to management doing, you know, um, making sure you get the details right, but leadership helps you structure so that you do the right things and you influence the people in a very, you know, soul-centered sort of way. And that's why when I first met you and Ed, I loved your approach to business and the soul of enterprise and the very much intangibles that play into things that I think, by and large, in the last 20 years or so, businesses have often gotten away from. We've gotten so technically oriented, we're so keyed into our dashboards and our metrics and the, the numbers that we sometimes forget it's not just the numbers. Right. You know, I love how I love your definition. Leadership simply means influencing others for good. <laughs> I just love that. I think it's really, really a Thank good you. way to put it. Yeah. Well, I, I tried to take him all my experience, you know, in government settings, military settings, commercial settings and extracting the common element. And I think that part for good is absolutely crucial. I mean, you have people who lead or have led in history to do some terrible, awful things. I mean, the, <laughs> the 20th century is riddled with that. And yet, in my view, that's not real leadership. It's not the, anything close to the kind of leadership we should aspire to. We need to have a purpose-driven and focus that is towards doing good. Right. And, and, you ha- and I want to jump into your model, your 4P, 4P leadership performance balance model. But you also say about leadership that you need trust. And I, and I really loved how you emphasized trust. It made me think of that. It, I think it's a military saying that the soldier is entitled to competent command. Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, you remind, I, I talk about the components of trust, and then, of course, we rightfully think of integrity being first in that equation, uh, but it's not the only part of the equation. You know, beyond the integrity and doing the right thing, you need to have the competence to uh, make the right kinds of decisions so that your people can trust you. Otherwise, that trust will erode. And I've been fortunate enough to be in leadership positions where that's just very clear. If, you, if you're not hacking it as the commander or in a very demanding sort of position like being an astronaut, it will be very obvious to the world, and there's just no way you're going to have the respect or trust of people who, uh, where that's required to do the job as a team. Right. Well, like you say, everything is on the line, but, but, and in the Air Force, too. Oh, very much so. I mean, the, the culture, with, and, and generally the culture's not totally, the subtleties of the culture is not really appreciated, I think, by and large in the civilian world of the elite military units, like, you know, your special forces units, of course, uh, and military fighter squadrons or, or flight test squadrons, where it's extremely demanding and competitive to get in and very, very high standards. And the subtleties of the culture are that even with all that and the competitiveness of it all, at the end of the day, it's all about being there for your buddy and backing them up, never leaving anyone behind. Of course, the SEAL, important part of the SEAL credo, and uh, in the fighter squadron, is just be a, always there for your wingman. And for me, that was just 
the absolute best part of being in those units, the, the intangible sense of being able to trust someone with your lives and being part of something that's so much greater than yourself. You know, money, money can't buy that. <laughs> and <Right. laughs> uh, there, there's, I look back on my life and my professional experiences, and I treasure every single one of those. Rick, in the book, you lay out a 4P leadership performance balance model, uh, purpose, people, perspective and program and, and you lay out 12 key principles we're not going to have time to go through them all but can you talk mm-hmm. about because i just love how you start with purpose well yeah absolutely i mean it's coming again from a military background it's all about the mission you know what are we set tasked to do today what does our nation need us to do either in this combat situation or humanitarian situations or just day-to-day training what's the mission and that evolves to uh, purpose, and of course, I set up my four P's to be something easy to remember, and the four P aspect of it helps with that. But purpose, you know, what are we really all about? What are we driving towards? Uh, let's not just spin our wheels. And there are components of that that uh, I think set you on the right path or get you out to the launch pad. You know, choosing to do difficult things, I, I believe, informs a sense of purpose. Uh, searching for a mission that really matters, that provides service to others, that even, obviously, as a business, you're in business to, to make a profit and to survive and grow the business. But along the way, you do that by bringing value to your customers. And that's uh, a mission that, that really matters, is serving others. And the other component of it I think is important that lights the fire to get off the launch pad, you might say, is uh, having a, a deep abiding love of what you're doing or, or passion is sometimes an overused term in that context, but uh, it, because it can be a still waters run deep kind of commitment to uh, what you, you're doing. But all of those rolled together gives an organization or an individual uh, a focus and a purpose uh, that is very, very powerful in setting the stage for everything to follow. Well, you know, I love how you say don't mistake activity for progress because all airspeed <laughs> no, in no direction just yeah, gets yeah, you yeah, lost. I, mean, I, that's, I mean, that's <laughs> concept is presented in, in a lot of business writing, but I present it with an aviation twist. Uh, yes. that, you know, all airspeed with no direction gets you lost in a real hurry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, your 12th principle, I absolutely love too. It's choose the hard. Mm-hmm. And, and you talk about JFK when he issued his challenge to land on the moon and, and come back safely. I, I don't want to leave right. that part out. That's important. But I didn't realize this, Rick, but our experience at that point in time with space flight was four flights, six orbits, and barely 10 people hours in space when exactly. JFK issued that challenge. Yeah, I mean, we were just barely in the infancy of humans going into space. And to lay out that challenge there... Uh, to our nation was just uh, phenomenal. And I I think speaks very, very well of President Kennedy's uh, um, long-term vision and and understanding of the importance of that. And and he laid out in that same speech with the help of a great speechwriter, you know, some great metaphors about setting sail across uncharted new seas and so forth and how we would accomplish so much more by setting this bar high than if we just continued to muddle along. And, you know, I learned firsthand once I got into the program how difficult space flight really is, human space flight. I mean, I even as a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. It was always my dream. And I'd gone through some di- difficult things before in my military training, but getting ready for my first shuttle mission was the hardest thing I ever did professionally. I mean, just it seemed like the work never ended. And I just had to keep reminding myself, hey, 
you want to do this. You're, you're choosing to do this hard thing, and there will be benefits which come from it. And I found benefits from an individual point of view and also from an organizational point of view are just phenomenal if you take that philosophy on board. Right. The link there, I think, with business is, is terrific because, I mean, w- what worth having is easy, you know, mm-hmm. and, and all profits come from risk. Exactly. And that's what I... That's what I really appreciated about your book about, uh, you know, that principle, choose the heart. I, I thought that was an excellent metaphor. Um, you know, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, I know we're kind of running up against a break here, but Ed and I think the after action review is the best learning tool ever oh, yeah. created. It's just amazing. And you say in the book that the AAR, I think you call it a debriefing after yeah, a I mean, space shuttle. The AAR from the from its military heritage typically came from the army and although it's the same thing in, the, in an air force or an aviation context we always just call it the debriefing but same thing right yeah. right you say the flight's not over until after the debriefing exactly and it you did a two-week debriefing after the space shuttle flight yes every day i mean eight or ten hours a day every single system every going through over the timeline with the fine-tooth comb what we could have done better capture all those lessons, pass them forward uh, throughout the, not just the flight crew uh, and within the astronaut office, but every part of the operational and the payload structure of, uh, of the program. And, uh, you know, it's, it's absolutely crucial. In fact, um, a little bit of a, a comical metaphor that ties into this that uh, you, you might appreciate. Um, what's the difference between fighter pilots and apes? And there are many differences and many similarities, too. But one of the key differences is apes almost never debrief one another. Debrief. And I do remember reading that. that. You know, everything you do, from the simplest little uh, two-ship formation flight where you do some basic building block kind of training all the way up to a huge integrated exercise with hundreds of airplanes or a, or a combat operation, you know, Desert Storm or uh, all of the activities since... You always come down back afterwards and you pick it apart. When I was going through the U.S. Air Force Fighter Weapons School, which is sort of an elite, um, think of a Ph.D. level in uh, fighter tactics and so forth, uh, we would we would prepare for a mission. A two-hour flight would take us about five or six hours to prepare for. Then we'd fly the flight, and we'd come back, and we, as the student instructors, so to speak, would conduct a debrief that would last about three hours, and then our instructor instructors would go after us from start from square one and do another three-hour debrief. It just wow. it seemed like all we were doing was debriefing, but you extract so many lessons when you have enough diligence to, uh, to do that. And it's of all the things I've seen in business crossing over from best practices and so forth from NASA and the military. The one I find gets typically the short shrift is the after-action review mm-hmm. or the debriefing. And I, I would suspect you and Ed feel the same way, that uh, there's Absolutely. just not enough of it done in business because everyone's off to the next best thing and uh, time is money. We can't waste time talking about what we did. But right. it's crucial. Yep. It is crucial. Well, you're, well, Rick, this is great, but we're up against a break. And, folks, I'd like to remind you, if you'd like to contact Ed or myself, you can do so at asktsoe at verisage.com. But now we want to hear from our sponsor, Azamba. We're making 
making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. We believe great companies can become even greater by challenging the status quo within their companies. The latest challenge to your status quo? The way people buy has changed. Buyers now control the majority of the front end of the sales process. Sellers must learn to facilitate a buying process, not conduct a sales process. Social buying signals are an opportunity for sales. Learn more. Go to quantacrm.com slash ABC to request a copy of the white paper, Always Be Closing, a guide to the new art of social selling. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise with Colonel Rick Searfoss, astronaut and space shuttle commander, and also author of Liftoff, an astronaut commander's countdown for purpose-powered leadership. I, I wanted to, to to drill in on on the mission where you were the commander, and that is STS Space Shuttle ninety NeuroLab, uh, where a tremendous number of experiments were conducted in neurobiology. It's also it, you mentioned during the break the fourth longest ever space shuttle mission. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about that that mission. Yeah, well, so this mission was actually eight years uh, in the preparation and development. The the idea was at the beginning of the 90s uh, for NASA to do a contribution to the decade of the brain. Many of us don't realize that the 90s was the decade of the brain. But uh, NASA partnered with the National Institutes of Health, so it wasn't just a NASA mission. And they got uh, leading-edge uh, neuroscientists from around the world, NIH and universities and so forth, to pull together the best experiments they could find that could uh, take advantage of this unique environment of microgravity. And, uh, you know, every physiological function of plants, animals, humans changes when you take gravity away. And the whole idea was in this u- unique environment to, to pull out the results we could in data that tied into neuroscience. So, you know, that's not my field technically. My field's in engineering physics and uh, flight test, and that's what's needed to command the mission and to fly the shuttle and so forth. But I had the amazing privilege of working with some super smart docs, uh, not just in the flight crew, but our principal investigators and the NASA support people. And it was a a real joy for me to broaden my professional horizons to help um, facilitate, you might say, or make possible uh, them doing this leading-edge, world-class science uh, in this difficult, dynamic environment of space. So great experience from start to finish for me. And didn't you get to uh, volunteer as a test subject as well? 
I did. And, uh, you know, primarily my duties as commander were, like, overall in, in charge of the flow of the mission, getting the job done and so forth, and the safety aspects and operating the shuttle. But th- that still left a little bit of a time in our 16-hour workday every day to participate <laughs> as a test subject and so forth. And I had some poking and prodding doing some of the more invasive experiments they could not do on the pilot or commander just from NASA safety (laughs) protocols. You know, there was one experiment rig which, you know, you're really constrained in this thing and they actually poked a wire into the vagus nerve in the leg to measure signals and they would not let the pilot or commander get poked in the leg nerves during flight. (laughs) Darn that luck. But I felt it was important from a leadership viewpoint to volunteer to do pre-flight and post-flight data on that. And the scientists were ecstatic. They go, hey, if you would volunteer to do that, that will help us. And I said, sure. And my whole motivation, I mean, that was a little bit uncomfortable, but it wasn't terrible. But my whole motivation was to show these folks that I'm not just the rocket jockey astronaut kind of guy, that I really cared about their results and getting as much as we could towards the purpose of the mission. And it paid tremendous dividends, I felt, in, in building the team and uh, you know showing that we're all in it together and it was a valuable thing to do. So, so now I'm going to get to ask a, a question that I didn't get a chance to ask you. We, we met you at an ITA event, and I did ask you how does space smell, and I didn't realize that you had not been – I hadn't read your book at the time that you had not been out. But now I want to ask you, how well do you sleep in space? Ah, sleeping in space. For, the, for each of my three missions, for the first couple nights, I did not sleep particularly well because I'm still getting used to the environment, especially my rookie flight. Um, and you're, you're very keyed up, too. You know, I mean, you're up there, and I, I got work to do, and I don't want to get behind that timeline, you know, and, and your mind's just racing. Uh, so there's some psychosocial things going on, and there's also just being in this new environment. I had a mild backache going on for uh, the first few days as the fluid shifts physiologically in my body are going on and getting used to that. I never felt queasy or stomach upset or anything. I was fortunate never to have space sickness, so I was good on that. But after a couple days, once that uh, I kind of got used to the environment more and things settled down, and the fatigue, the longer-term fatigue starts setting in, because you're you're charging, you're hammering it for 16 hours a day. And after a few days, man, I began to sleep like a baby all the way to the end of the mission, and I had no problem. In fact, you, you want to know how you can rock yourself to sleep in space? <laughs> just, in, in the shuttle, we had these, uh, um, they're kind of hammock kind of arrangements. They call them sleeping bags, but really like a hammock setup. And so you clip it up in the flight deck, and then you get in it, and you can just kind of, you know, just get yourself moving just a little bit, and then it will pick up and it'll just sway you back up and down for seems like forever and almost rock yourself to sleep that way (laughs) (laughs) wow wow well thank you that's that that's that's fantastic story i want to move on now and talk to you a little bit about what you're doing now so you left nasa and then you've served as a judge for the ansari x prize and then you've gone on and are working with um x core aerospace in the development of their rocket-powered aircraft so so you, I take it then that you are very much in favor of, of civilians in space and, and uh, branching out beyond just NASA then? Yeah, I am very much in favor of commercial space activities, been quite involved with that. In fact, you know, when I first left NASA, I've done a variety of things. I did something we call in the astronaut corps. When you leave the astronaut corps and you go into either NASA or aerospace company management, we call it descending into management. You know? <laughs> so I, I did some of that for a while. 
I had a chance to go back to a test flying position with NASA. For, I did that for a few years. Uh, as that flight test research work was on kind of on the wane and not much going on, I, I found an opportunity to go out in business for myself as an independent consultor, consultant and speaker. So I speak to audiences around the country, actually around the world. I've been to China and Australia and Europe several times, Saudi Arabia speaking, about leadership, teamwork, innovation. Uh, but then that doesn't fill up all of my time, and I like to stay busy, and I like to stay connected to my technical roots. So I have been consulting with several new space com- companies through the years on uh, human spaceflight-related things, and in particular, X-Core Aerospace. I've test-flown uh, rocket-powered testbed aircraft, helped in cockpit design of the vehicle they're designing and hope to fly to suborbital space. Uh, the X-Prize, uh, kind of a hallmark of innovation uh, that uh, the original X Prize was won in 2004, and it's since expanded to many different uh, elements or different industries other than human spaceflight. I was very involved with that as the chief judge. Um, like I talked about before, I consulted on a few movies, and so very, very eclectic. Um, but my core these days is sharing my leadership and teamwork message uh, as a speaker. And so who do you think is going to make it to Mars first, NASA or one of these uh, Ah, commercial? Interesting question, and I'm just fascinated by what's going on there. I think I I would not bet against Elon Musk, let's put it that way. I mean, he he stood up – when he stood up, SpaceX started this company, a lot of the old – sort of dinosaur perspective uh, aerospace people said oh, I'll never be able to do that no. and sure enough they've had great success with their Falcon series of rockets and they've built uh, NASA contracts based on that success and and he has uh, made it an avowed publicly stated goal that they're going to Mars and I think we'll see partnerships uh, between uh, folks like him very visionary that also have the resources to commit to developing the technology We'll see the partnerships between them and the government, and I think when humans eventually go to Mars, it will be in some sort of not only uh, government-private uh, inter- um, partnership, but also uh, various different governance, governments, very international. Uh, so that's coming along. The progress that has happened in the commercial sector of space in the last 10 years have been phenomenal. It's a uh, it's a very, very exciting field to be in now as you see great new creative, innovative things happening. Uh, and it's just it's fun to be part of, actually. Is it, is it just because the, the uh, private sector can, can try so many different things as opposed to, you know, go- governments have a tendency to, well, hey, this is what's worked before and get kind of locked into one yeah, way? I mean, there's a variety of organizational components to it. Um, there's... I have found from working in the private sector, too, I mean, it's not all roses out there. The challenges they face in the private sector, you know, funding, of course, is always there for these ventures and uh, and not having enough resources to bear on a problem. Or, you know, the Apollo program, when uh, it came straight down from the president with full support of both houses of Congress, bam, we're going to do this. It was very resource unconstrained. We spent about 6% of the federal budget on the Apollo program during its uh, heyday, whereas currently NASA gets about 0.75%, so, you know, a factor almost 10 less. Um, In the government, you've got, you know, slower processes and constraints and the political overlay of Congressman X won't support it because he doesn't have 
um, a president, you know, NASA doesn't have a presence in his district or those kinds of considerations. Those things always frustrated me. Uh, but I realize in the private sector, you've got your own challenges and constraints and hurdles you have to hop over. You just uh, deal with them as they come. You, you focus on your vision and purpose, and you try and make it happen, as opposed to just sitting back and shrugging your shoulders and saying, well, I'll let other people do great things, you know. All right. Well, hey, listen, great stuff. And we're up against our last break already. So we want right. to uh, and, and I want to let Ron get in here for the for the last little bit. But I want to remind our audience that you can get a hold of us at AskTSOE at VerisAge.com. And of course, the website, The Soul of Enterprise. Please keep those reviews coming on Amazon as well as on iTunes. We love hearing from you as well. And right now we're going to hear from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Four new employees, a 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're honored to be here with Colonel Rick Sirf. Sir Foss, and he's the author of Liftoff, which is a fantastic book on leadership that's also got a lot of aviation stories and, of course, astronaut stories. Rick, I wanted to ask you, you talked about when you landed the space shuttle that you turned off autopilot, and Ed and I are kind of fascinated with driverless cars and, you know, maybe at some mm-hmm. point in, our, in the future, pilotless airplanes. But there's skeptics out there that say, no, no, you're always going to need a human override. And one of the things uh, one of these skeptics wrote is that almost all the moon landings, I think all of them, were done by turning off the autopilot and the, uh, the pilot took over. What's your take on that? I mean, do, do the pilot needs to fly, doesn't he? Right, right. Well... Just in terms of uh, automation with respect to aviation or, or spacecraft, automation it plays a very important role. Uh, it, it does things that humans aren't so great at very, very well, like 
for example, maintaining an altitude within just a couple feet for hours on end without getting bored and distracted. <laughs> mm-hmm. but the, anything that requires the judgment or the adaptability or the flexibility absolutely need humans in the loop. And the other component that ties into it, which is actually a problem these days in aviation with so much reliance on automation and the pilots sometimes losing a bit of their edge on the manual flying skills when they need them on that proverbial dark and stormy night, they might not be as sharp as they need to be. So there's a lot of give and take back and forth on that. With respect to the space shuttle, it actually had an auto land system. It was never used for a real landing. Um, one flight took it, uh, kept it on auto all the way down to short final to test that system out. Um, but interestingly enough, and you have to keep in mind, too, this was uh, 70s technology when it was designed, and it was also designed to minimize the touchdown uh, sync rate as opposed to precise touchdown speed. So it was the autopilot on the shuttle actually targeted something that wasn't as important. As we began developing the operations, we realized it was much more important within the actual touchdown limits to get to a precise touchdown speed because you had too slow and you could scrape the tail, too fast and you could uh, exceed the tire limits. And, you know, there's a lot of good reasons to have the human landing it because our performance on that, as demonstrated by thousands of shuttle landing uh, approaches in the uh, Gulfstream 2 trainer we flew, is that the humans were much, much better than the automation with that. Um, the other component is if you're on an automated system and, uh, and you've got a, a couple seconds of getting into the loop if something goes wrong and you have to take over from the system. We've all seen that with our uh, cruise control on the car. You know, you're just cruising along fat, dumb, and happy, and, you know, a chicken runs across the road or something, you've got to get into it, and it takes a couple seconds to adapt. So you're better off to be in the loop earlier, be warmed up, be staying on top of things than to uh, jump in into the fray. And all of those considerations and more play into the driverless car technology, and it's, um, it's fascinating to me the great progress they've made, but uh, those that just with their rose-colored glasses stand up and say, oh, it's all solved and there's not going to be any problems, I just, as a technical guy and as a test pilot, I go, baloney, there's a lot of problems that have to be solved before this can be operational. So you're always going to need that big red button for the human over overriding well, yeah, you, you need to at least have, you have to consider all those elements and get to the point you know, I think the point when, you know, the engineers say a system like that is ready, it means, you know, you have a whole lot more tests to do. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. been my experience as a test pilot for any sort of system or, or new development. Right, right. Uh, it makes complete sense. You know, in the book, you talk a lot about the, the views from space and, and all of that. And, I'm, and I don't want to discount any of that, but I want to ask you about a different uh, scene in the book that you paint. And I thought it was very poignant. I think it was when you were the commander and you're going out to the, the, the launch site and you're looking up at the shuttle and you just you paused for four or five minutes to... Yeah kind of take in the immensity of this mission this whole purpose like you say that we're about what was it i mean i know you had done two missions before as a pilot and that must have been something but what was it like to experience that moment as the commander yeah. that you're in charge of these seven right. or eight well, other first of all i must say we, we did we intentionally we purposefully took about four or five minutes and and this is in a very you know by the minute timeline to step outside the astrovan, look up at the vehicle, and just absorb, do some intangible, just some think, thinking, maybe even soul-searching, and, you know, like the incredible import of what we're about to do. 
And as commander, I felt that was very important. My first commander had done that with us. It was uh, hugely beneficial to me. So I had it built into our timeline. And I was mostly cognizant as the commander at that point. This is about the opportunity for my five rookies out of seven of us on the crew to drink this in, to enjoy the enormity of standing by a fully fueled up rocket ship that they're going to ride on into space in a couple hours with all of the support structure pulled back and it's there in all its glory. It, it seems like it's a sleeping dragon. And that it's an intangible sort of component that would never show up in the technical list of things that need to get done before you can launch. But on the human side of the equation, it was worth doing, and, and it was important that we added it in. So I, it's, to, to this date, one of my most treasured memories of being in the program. Wow. You, you know, you also wrote about how once the wives got to go up there and 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 kind of be on the bridge that takes you to takes the astronauts into the sh- shuttle, and she left right. you a note. I think, ha ha, yeah. I was here well, first. In fact, well, that's another thing that points out organizationally. Uh, during my first launch, when I was a rookie, my wife and and the wife of one of the other rookies were going out to the launch pad with one of the astronaut escorts. And uh, they got up to the base of the pad, and this escort, he was fairly new and didn't have much experience at Kennedy Space Center with the rules and procedures. And one of the workers said, hey, why don't you take him up to the 195-foot level? And he goes, are you sure? Is that okay? Said, yeah, don't worry about it. There's not much going on. So he took him up there, and the wives had open-toed sandals on, and that's a safety violation and those kinds of things. And they were just blown away also with the immensity of it all. And they, they were also encouraged, though, because... Keep in mind, in a couple of days from now, their spouses were going to do something really risky. They might, you know, they might die, and sure. they just it gave them a great comfort, good feeling, and they got back. Uh, of course, the astronaut got in a little bit of trouble from the safety viewpoint, but he then <laughs> he told the boss, he says, "This is a really good thing. We, if we do this right, <laughs> and with all the safety procedures, we ought to make this a procedure for every shuttle launch." And and after that, they did. And it was, again, another little intangible human-related thing that ties into the overall success or, or sense of uh, binding within the organization. And, uh, and, you know, my wife just loved the experience. Again, a treasured memory for her. Uh, sometimes rocket science isn't science. That's <laughs> it's right. human. I mean, it's, it's still humans doing this rocket science. <laughs> you know, one thing that also really intrigued me, Rick, because of your Air Force history, you flew for the Air Force in the early 80s. So during, you know, the Cold War and kind of in the intense period of the Cold War, too, towards the end. And, and then when you were pilot of Atlantis, you joined up with the... The, the space station Mir, uh, right. where the Russians were. That that must have just been really interesting to go from them being enemies to now you're working in space together. Beyond interesting. I mean, it was profoundly uh, amazing to me. I mean, pinch myself kind of. Can't, I can't believe I'm on board a Russian space station. I've become friends with Yuri Yusachev and Yuri Onofrenko, and Yuri Onofrenko had been a Soviet Forces Far East fighter pilot when our commander, Kevin Chilton, had been an F-15 pilot in Okinawa. At that same time, uh, in the early 80s, I was an F-111 attack pilot in England, and their backup commander had been a MiG-23 flogger pilot in Soviet Forces East Germany. And, And here we're 12 years later, we're all trying to do something together uh, in our respective space programs and becoming personal friends, and I got to know them on a personal level. And In fact, I just saw Yuri 
Yusuchev a couple years ago at a uh, space event over in Germany, and we started talking, and it was interesting to me. I reflect now, we didn't talk about really anything technical or even about our time together on Mir. First thing he came up to me, he says, Rick, I'm going to be a grandpa. <laughs> I said, oh, Yuri, that's great. I've been a grandfather two years. It's the best thing ever. And two space guys from uh, different parts of the world who had been, you know, former enemies and then tried to partner and work together when they, uh, as friends, get together several years later, what do they talk about? They talk about family and people things. And that was just wonderful experience for me. Wow. That's awesome. Well, Rick, this has just been so great. We thank you so much for, for coming on the show. And folks, we will post full show notes and all the different websites where you can find out more about Colonel Rick Searfoss and his book, Liftoff, An Astronaut Commander's Countdown for Purpose-Powered Leadership. Highly recommended to you for uh, just some great stories and just some wonderful leadership lessons. And Ed, what do we have up for next week? Next week, Ron, we're going to do one of our episodes where we're going to profile four business books, two each. Oh, excellent. Well, I look forward to that, and I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. And again, our special thanks to Colonel Rick Searfoss for being a fantastic guest. 